Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast on the Criterion Collection and cinema. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss things human and divine with Leon Morin, Priest. In a remote French village set in the Alps during World War II, the young, committed communist Barney, played by Emmanuel Riva, has her half-Jewish daughter baptized to avoid the attention of the occupying fascist forces. On a whim, Barney decides to play a prank on one of the town's priests during confession, but is surprised to find in the young curate a worthy interlocutor who takes up the task of counseling the widowed atheist. Father Leon Marin, played by Jean-Paul Belmondo, who acts against type in this title role, is charismatic, intelligent, and devoted to his calling, which all inspire a conversion in Barney, who finds herself drawn not only to the priest, but perhaps to Christ as well. Adapted for the screen by Jean-Pierre Melville from Beatrix Beck's novel of the same title, Leon Moren Priest is a careful, nuanced examination of two people who are drawn to one another in the most ordinary ways during extraordinary times. Barney falls in love with her priest, but is her love reciprocated, and if so, what will this mean for them? Drawing upon his own experiences in occupied France, Melville crafts a thoughtful and thematically rich story that never seeks easy resolutions. Released by the Criterion Collection on Blu-ray and DVD in 2011, Leon Ren Priest comes packaged with supplements in its 117-minute theatrical version. Join Matt and me as we embrace the dialectic of faith and love. So Matt, beginning our conversation here today, uh, as we've mentioned many times in previous episodes, I'm Catholic, you're Lutheran, and so I'm going to hand this right over to you. Uh, What does the Protestant man think of this very, I think, very Catholic movie? Uh, I, I don't know if I'd say it's very Catholic. I mean, there's some there's some commonalities here uh, that bridge the gulf, I think. Uh, you know, it, it's a very interesting film. I, I, I This is actually the first time I've seen it, and I'm definitely a Melville fan. I, I just haven't really gotten to this film. Uh, World War II definitely is a pretty primary fixture in a lot of his films, and this is really no exception. Uh, so, you know, the setting is, is one that's, that's quite dramatic, obviously. Uh, but I was surprised by the very episodic nature of this film. Uh, it's structurally pretty unique and has its own voice in that regard. So that, that really struck me, uh, seeing it and overall I enjoyed it. I, I, you know, it's just refreshing to see films like this again, uh, this will reveal our age, I'm sure, but uh, just to see a film of two people sitting in a room talking about interesting things, and it doesn't sound like that would be very cinematic, right? But uh, those tend to be some of my favorite films uh, for some reason. I just admire the simplicity of it, and if you can use the language of cinema to kind of enhance what's being discussed and um, make them even more impactful, I, I think it's it's something... Something to cherish. So, yeah, overall, uh, really enjoyed this. You know, it's interesting that you talk about it being a film really about just two people sitting in a room, which is mostly what it is. The original version was over three hours long, Hmm. and Melville cut out against kind of the studio's own uh, intent uh, most of the stuff that dealt with the occupation. Uh, It's in the background in this film. I mean, you know it. It's important. But it doesn't dwell on it. There's certain details that you pick up, you know, as they're sitting in a room. They're often wearing thicker layers of clothing because, as it would be the wartime, lots of resources would not have been available. You obviously have the the fathers of the children come uh, at the beginning, or the, at least the people that stand in as godfathers that come in and then retreat back into the woods as the resistance fighters, right? So there's hints of it, and there's talk of it, and you have different... Uh, you know, military personnel, including later in the film, American personnel, right, that come into the yeah. to the picture. But 
it isn't about the occupation per se. And the, my understanding is the original cut had a lot more of that, almost an hour's worth more of that, uh, which would have made it, I guess you'd think, more cinematic. As it is right now, it feels like it could have easily been just a stage play uh, that's really being put on here. But like you said, the direction of it, the way pacing is taking place in terms of the the movement of actors across the uh, the the room, the way the camera moves, the way it frames things, it gives a, a very much a cinematic highlight. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, as we get into this relationship between Father Morin and Barney, how it is that uh, you have almost like a almost like it's a uh, presentation of him like he's a, a a bell at a debutante ball right you know it's kind of one scene after another of her looking at him and him swirling in the chair by the piano and him <laughs> coming up with his cassock and all these different things that it obviously presents to us a very subjective image of how she sees him right whereas you know in a play as much as you would try i'm still ultimately just looking at the setting my own eyes whereas the camera here can be used to really give subjective points of reference uh, from within the head of the character, right? Uh, but I think that the film is ultimately, like you say, fundamentally interested in ideas. And it's interested specifically in how those inter-ideas, I think, interact with people. And that's what I find so fascinating about this particular film. You have these two characters who really engage one another by engaging ideas. And then how do these personalities, how do these people in very specific circumstances because of those ideas, because of those convictions, because of their own personalities interact with one another. What does it mean for them to interact with one another? And that's not necessarily going to make $150 million on its opening weekend. Uh, might not even make $150 on its <laughs> opening weekend anymore. Yeah. Uh, but it is the kind of cinema that I think lasts. And it's the kind of cinema that I think ultimately uh, resonates for a mature audience. Yeah, we should mention Melville's background to a degree, too. I mean, he uh, served in World War II. He was uh, part of the French forces that were evacuated at Dunkirk. Uh, he actually joined the French Resistance. That that plays heavily into many of his films, like Ed mentioned. I mean, Army of Shadows is another one that stands out. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of that film. So he really had a lot of first-hand experience with that world. And his first feature, um, uh, Silence de la Mer, is also concerned with World War II. And, and this film kind of takes a lot from that picture in terms of it being set you know, in limited locations, real locations, um, a lot of just one-room settings. And so he really seems to kind of embrace that uh, that kind of filmmaking and he was very much an independent filmmaker uh, as well and started his own film studio so you you get the sense that he's quite budget conscious with his pictures uh, as well and and also really aware of how to you know maximize the resources that he has available to him and and this film I think uh, exhibits that as well so uh, yeah, I really respect him just as a director and and his themes in general, I, I think, are pretty, uh, there's a pretty clear through line, I think, through a lot of his films in terms of the topics he's interested in. He's not overtly political. He's more philosophical in many ways. I think he's interested in the human condition and, and you know, the spirituality that can take place within very extreme historical situations. And and this film is probably his most overtly religious film that I can think of. Uh, there may be some other other films of his I haven't seen uh, that that rival this, but uh, his his background is is pretty interesting to consider in the context of this film. Well, beyond what you've just said, uh, he's also was a committed, uh, as he described himself, a, a right wing anarchist. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that he often focuses on gangster films, that's what he's probably most known for, I would imagine, actually, more than his his occupied France war films. Uh, yeah. That's what you think of. Uh, and this would seem to be so contrary to that. But at the same time, it, it fits in very much with his sort of examination of unique or interesting loners. 
just as you'd think of Alain Delon as a gangster, right, who's kind of got living by this code, kind of remote, kind of different, right? Uh, this film has a priest who lives by a code, is different, kind of remote, isolated, sort of unobtainable, right? And so there's a, a, an interesting parallel with this and some of his other work in terms of how he envisions and sees the priest in the film. Uh, I also think that it uh, is interesting that he himself was also an atheist, right? A, a background was Jewish. I don't know that he was ever specifically uh, raised with a particularly devout background as a child, but you know he is on the record saying he was an atheist. But I think he isn't a director who's necessarily interested in presenting his own ideas on top of his characters. So the fact that he is an atheist doesn't necessarily mean that he has to bring that sensibility or that philosophy into what he's doing here. And I think he always resisted that with any of his films, uh, the idea that he was supposed to comment upon the world he was depicting. He would rather want it to be presented accurately and honestly on its own terms. So for him, it's it's looking at these characters and trying to make sense of them. And that's where maybe we can jump into the film itself a little bit more detail is, is this particular exchange with uh, Father Moran and with uh, Barney. Uh, obviously, it's a film that looks like it's a conversion story of sorts for her, right? Uh, you know, she begins as a atheist, as a communist. Uh, she has intellectual engagement, and uh, I think the film captures that era of history in the Catholic Church extremely accurately. Uh, some of the, down even to some of the theologians that they're discussing, who might not be known to anybody now, but if you had been French at the time, uh, would have likely been. Although the fact that they may mention Carl Adam, who uh, nobody really remembers anymore, is interesting because he uh, was a German. Uh, professor uh, and would have uh, actually had, I think, um, probably not as much of a following in France, uh, particularly at the time of the war. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's maybe there's some priests here or there that did pick him up and kind of get inspired by him. But I would be highly highly suspicious of that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, they capture very many of the eth- uh, of the interests of the of the church and of the cler- of the clergy at that particular moment of history very well. That makes these conversations seem extremely realistic. I can imagine that the French audiences seeing this in 1961 when it was released would have thought of this as a very fresh, accurate, honest depiction of these characters uh, and could see why this particular priest with a working class background, with still a great intellectual curiosity uh, and a willingness to kind of probe and push and challenge could speak to a character like Barney uh, and stir her imagination. But then the question is, how much is her attraction to the priest versus how much is her attraction to the faith? And Melville seems to be very much of the opinion that she doesn't really ever convert. Uh, she's convinced of her own conversion, but she ultimately was just trying to bed him the whole time. Uh, I'm not convinced that's actually accurate to what's being shown on screen. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that particular debate, but I think... As we see the film progress uh, and we get to that moment where she does attempt to seduce him, uh, that he and his resistance of it, right, uh, she ultimately regrets it, has her true regret for it. And when she sees him back in her apartment talking to her daughter, you know, she actually says a prayer to God at that moment, uh, thanking God that he loves her, his priest more than she does. Uh, and I think seeing that play out tells me that her conversion really was real, that she actually does undergo an actual conversion uh, of this. It's not just simply she's got the hots for uh, father. What a waste uh, (laughs) as uh, the English uh, saying goes. Uh, But I do think that the film is subtle enough and interesting enough and not telegraphing its ideas and its interpretation of the characters enough to allow people to really have to wrestle with what is her motive or what's really going on or what's his motive. You know, as he, he seems to make it a point to meet with a lot of women. Now, admittedly, it's wartime. Most of the men would be gone or fighting, but we never really see him talking to a man. <laughs> we only see him talking to women. Uh, and that's not inaccurate to the church. Uh, most council or most uh, women, people that are involved in the, in the parish are going to be typically women. Uh, but boy, we never see him talking to anybody other than that. Now, 
the film's not really about him. I think it's more about Barney. But it is an interesting thing to try to understand. What's he doing? Is he enjoying that he has this kind of power over women, that he has this kind of attraction to women? So I think the film captures that stuff extremely accurately and well in this particular movie. Yeah, it's very complicated. There's a lot of different uh, things to explore here. I mean... Uh, to your, your first question, whether or not, you know, Barney has a true conversion, I, I, I didn't get the sense that she was, you know, putting on airs by the end of the film. I mean, maybe initially uh, she was kind of playing along to make a human connection, right? I mean, she's clearly someone who's lonely and wants intellectual debate and stimulation in that regard. And she really starts out being very adversarial. And then over time, uh, develops this attraction, and and I think that that scene at the end that you pointed out when when he's uh, when Leah Morin is with uh, her daughter, that really is the proof. I think that that her soul has been uh, has been converted at least to some degree, and it's interesting the, the character of Leah Morin himself is quite a, a gruff character in some ways. I mean, he's he's not really overtly evangelical, it seems. I mean, he's, he's engaging with these women or with Barney in a very honest and open way and addressing her questions not in a way that seems to have the objective of conversion, right? It's, it's more, well... Here, here's the reality. Here's the truth. He seems more interested in sharing what he sees, you know, to be the truth or what he believes to be the truth, versus telling her what she wants to hear. And that that's a very interesting thing because it's not something you would automatically expect in a situation like this, right? And his somewhat gruff demeanor toward her at times is is interesting because you wonder, you know. It, is this part of his strategy? Is it him dealing with his own maybe emotional connection to her and trying to keep her at a distance? There's there's that moment in the church when he kind of brushes up against the side of her head and she's kind of sent into a, a spiral trying to figure out what that meant, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <And then laughs> little Little moments like that I thought were interesting because, yeah, as the audience... You're, you're sort of questioning the nature of the relationship and what the true intentions are and, and what people's true feelings are. And by the end of the film, you do realize how devoted uh, Leon Morin is to his vocation and how seriously he, he does take the interactions with these women um, as really a spiritual pursuit and I, and I think that's made clear by the end of the film. Even though the film is not afraid to sort of set itself up as, you know, the story of potential forbidden love, right? And, and I think that that is played up probably for marketing purposes. And you even get that really kind of painful little gauzy fantasy sequence in the film when when he comes into her room and they kiss. And I that, that seemed almost like a studio note to me or something, or something they could put in a trailer. <laughs> this is the precursor to the Thornbirds, right? So I, I, I think there, there's a bit of an identity crisis with this film uh, in terms of, I think what it's trying to be truly at its heart versus still having those sort of titillating uh, hints that may attract a certain demographic or a certain kind of audience. So it's it's a complicated film. Uh, you see, this is where I said at the beginning, is it a very Catholic, Catholic, Catholic movie? Uh, I do think it is. And I think this part of your response there gives a little bit of a difference between how maybe a Catholic watches this versus the way a Protestant might see it. Uh, it's not at all surprising to me that a priest would approach evangelization or spiritual direction or whatever else with a sense of here's the truth, deal with it. Uh, that is kind of just a priest's way, uh, and it, it's very common. I mean, it wouldn't be a, a unsurprising at all in a Catholic to see it that way. Less interested in trying to do a song and dance, less interested in trying to, um, you know, do the 
what tell me what you think tell me what you feel like a therapeutic model right yeah. i mean that's become yeah. more prevalent i'd say in catholicism especially over the last 50 years you know following vatican II. definitely in a pre-vatican II context it would not have existed at all it probably wouldn't have existed really much of anything at all but i mean you definitely see that uh that kind of interaction that he has is I, I think the typical way a priest engages. We have a, a whole bunch of documents. We have a whole bunch of uh, history and tradition, and this is what it is, right? And so you, you articulate, oh, well, you have this objection. Here's the person you read. Uh, why don't you read this? And he has a little bit more of a kind of a loose way of doing it. Uh, you know, he lets her pick her own book. Why don't you just pick the book you think you should sure. read, right? Uh, he does that. You know, and then he does have some times where he pushes her, you know, to have a little bit more of a openness. You know, the, the, I'm thinking about how uh, she talks about, you know, she won't open the door because she's afraid it's the Gestapo. Uh, and he says, oh, maybe it's somebody that God's sending to you, right? It basically kind of encourages. So he does have ways in which he pushes her in that sense of open yourself up. Right, and I think that is kind of a Catholic model of evangelization that mm. might be different than something you find, particularly in an American context, right? And then the the clerical nature, right? I mean, the hierarchical structure of the church, the Catholic faith, would allow for a lot of these interactions. And this, you know, the 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 woman who comes in, the the secretary who's in t- intent on, I will seduce him, and I always get my man. All right, and he he clearly is aware of what she's doing, you know, and he like pulls down her skirt, you know, to like cover her knee again because she's pushing it up a little bit, right? I mean, that kind of gruffness that you talk about is also something that I think a certain kind of priest uh, relishes, and that a certain kind of uh, parishioner would expect, right? Mm-hmm. Almost would 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 be uh, somewhat. Uh, thrown back if it wasn't there, and I, I, that that whole I sense of the the, the the Catholicism presents a certain kind of sacramental and incarnational element to which I think these kinds of interactions and this way of trying to game what's going on, what really means, you know, how does this interpret? That's that's not uncommon with the priesthood for the layperson, uh, particularly I think for women. Uh, and you know the the it just the yes the brushing of the cassock uh, you know his surplus you know touches her as he's walking by in the in the church, you know is it intentional is it not intentional if it is intentional what did it mean did it mean this or did it mean that I mean that kind of reality it happens a lot actually uh, mm. in the Catholic Church uh, you know where people might because the priest is so kind of removed and is considered different that that kind of speculation is bred within, I think, the faithful, right? And so I think this film probably more accurately than any other movie I've seen anyway, I can't say I've seen every movie, but any movie I've ever seen captures kind of the the reality and the dynamics of Catholicism uh, and particularly clergy and laity better than any other, right? And even though certain things have changed since its release and since its setting in the 1940s, it still hits, I think, on certain kind of constant dynamics that make it forever kind of interesting and fresh from a Catholic perspective. Uh, but then because it's not so interested in trying to settle everything, I think it kind of makes it interesting in others. I mean, even just, you know, you talked about the the dream sequence maybe being uh, cringy or something along those lines. I didn't see it that way. Because those kinds of things do actually happen, actually, uh, you know, that people have that kind of fantasy or they kind of think and they go, oh, I'm not supposed to think that, right? I mean, that happens a lot uh, in Catholicism, right? And I think that the movie is honest and accurate. It's interesting, actually, that uh, this film was very much embraced by the Catholic Church when it was released. Mm. Uh, It was not looked at as a scandal. It was not looked at as some salacious uh, thing. Uh, which you would think, I mean, it's pretty frank on a lot. It's it's sex it's, is very front and center here. It's borderline for not sure. Not that there's nudity, not that there's not that there's um, sex scenes per se, but I mean, it's just that I mean, it's talked about. It's 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 addressed. I mean, it's not like it's a subtext thing, really. It's just flat out text yeah. uh, of, of the film that you know she she has a, an attraction to a, a woman in her office in her office, and she's got this lesbian sensibility and then she's attracted to the priest, right? So it's got all those elements there. Uh, And then you get the sense that he understands this attraction, but uses it maybe for a 
a holy purpose, right? Perhaps that's, you know, one of the things Moran is doing is he's trying to take this very human, natural passion and direct it towards something holier. I think that's ultimately where he winds up. What we see at the end, uh, by the end of the film, is that is what he's doing. Uh, and it's again, I don't know that that's the only way you could read it, but I think that is a way to read it, uh, that you see it kind of nobility in these characters at the end of the day. Yeah, it's, it's not to say that, um, you know, as a priest or a pastor, one should avoid hard teachings or being frank or uh, certainly you want to be speaking the truth when it comes to, to religious or spiritual matters. Uh, but, but yeah, there, there's a contrast in terms of how different people go about it, right? And, and you can think that one is more effective than another and it can depend on, on who the receiving party is. Um, but that, that's interesting to, to hear that perspective. Um, you know, in terms of how, how the relationship matures, I mean, Morin, I do get the sense that he is struggling with things to a degree and it seems more under the surface, right? And he does seem to put on a facade of, of, true dedication and and i i think that's wholly legitimate but some of his reactions to some of the situations suggests that you know maybe he has a moment of temptation himself i mean he's a human being and mm-hmm. and he deals with sin and he, he he is very upfront about having to confess his own sins right so he i don't think at any point is is trying to purport himself as as being free of sin but especially that reaction when when she tries to take his hand at the table there and he just recoils and leaves immediately, you know, and, and when he like slams the ax, yeah. you know, real hard. Right? Cause yeah. you know, so yes. So th- there's a sense of frustration, I think on his end too, that, uh, and that's really open to interpretation. I mean, could it be that he's frustrated that, that she seems so focused on these worldly passions or emotions or is he struggling with the same issues internally so the the film is is quite open-ended in that regard i think and and that that complexity does inform the debates they have and and i I really enjoyed those conversations i mean just the the the, um, theological debates that took place kind of throughout this film it's really just again, just refreshing to see two very strong actors uh, in a room, uh, really, really going at it in terms of uh, sparring intellectually. So that that's always satisfying uh, for me, just as a, a fan of cinema, to see that done well. And we probably should get into the performances too. I mean, what? what how do you feel about the acting in general here? Well, and tied into the performances is. Unlike a lot of other Melville films, this is a very dialogue-heavy film, yeah, right? Yeah, for sure. And a lot of his work has not. I mean, Le Silence de la Mer doesn't technically have dialogue, barely any dialogue in it, but there's a lot of voiceover. This also has voiceover uh, helping us to navigate Barney's quite a bit, thoughts. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, so, it, you know, I think that you're, you're right. That this is a great example of acting and a great example of, of screenwriting. It's a very talkative film, but it doesn't feel talky, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't feel like I'm being talked to, talked to, talked to. Uh, the dialogue feels very natural. I mean, you get the sense that this is what these people would say. Uh, this is how the conversations would take place. You know, one of my least favorite things is like the, the Christian movies that come out that are clearly kind of more of like a proselytizing thing <laughs> versus an honest, serious grappling with issues, right? Uh, and there's a lot of movies that do that. I mean, it's... It's not just Christian movies. I mean, there's plenty of films that are very heavy-handed yeah. and over-the-top and is simplistic in their themes, right? But, you know, there's not a single conversation here that feels like it's, you know, designed to be like, and oh my gosh, look at the brilliant point that he makes sure. that nobody could possibly resist, right? It's, yeah. it's just a continuing conversation. There's an honesty. And, I mean, but, there's an honesty to what's being discussed and and a clear admission that, you know, a spiritual journey as, as a Christian is a complicated and a challenging one. Right. Well, even I think it's, it's a conversation that 
you see that I think as an audience member, right, if you come into this either as a committed believer or as a non-believer, mm-hmm. whatever your personal uh, consideration, probably is touching on ideas you've wrestled with or you've considered. Maybe you've even thought through some of the own imagery they've used, right, in some of this. But, I mean, it really does present thoughts that I think would stir further com- conversation. I mean, it'd be an interesting movie to to take a church group to or to take, uh, you know, a, a group of, uh, I don't know, undergrad philosophy students to or something just to say, well, okay, what do you think about the ideas that were presented here? Uh, and I think it all hinges really on the lead performances, right? There's there's a supporting cast. There's actually a fairly, when you actually look through it, there's a, actually a, a fair m- number of other uh, little parts in this film. You know, some of the townspeople that, that think of the two spinsters that take in Barney's daughter, right, that <laughs> have some... I wouldn't call it quite comedy, but there's at least some element of levity. I mean, that's another thing, I guess, that's unique about this in Melville. Melville's movies were always so dark right? or serious, right? Yeah, and for sure. They, Generally, yeah. He never really, he never seemed to ever want to relieve you of the burden of what you're going through, right? And that's probably based on his own experience being in the resistance, uh, which must have been a very dark and heavy time of his life. But this does have, I think, certain levity, and even sometimes in the scoring uh, there's certain levity to it. Uh, but ultimately it comes down to, do we believe these performances by uh, by Emmanuel Riva and Jean-Paul Belmondo? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, I really buy them both similar ages. I'm guessing, you know, the in the movie they're supposed to be in their late 20s. I'm, I'm assuming they were probably in their early 30s when they actually made it. Uh, but, you know, they, they both capture, I think, the youthfulness of their characters. I mean, you you get the sense these are people who are alive, right? Mm-hmm. They're they're not just kind of resigned to the world as it is. They're not just kind of trying to make it through. Uh, there is a certain kind of energy and a certain uh, vibrancy in in them in terms of their physical presence, in terms of their their wit, their way of reaction. I I think. Uh, really, I, I'm, very, I'm very impressed with both of them. I think I'm probably more drawn to Emmanuel Riva's performance just because I think she is the real character and focus here. Uh, even though he's got the title character, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo seems to be more or less only understood through her interpretation of things. I, there are moments that are otherwise. You know, you cited the you know the way he handles chopping that wood, right? You know, the anger. Like how do you interpret it? Is it is it him expressing a sexual frustration or is it him being frustrated with the fact that she's still stuck in this place where she's yeah. thinking this way, right? Um, you know, but I do think that, yeah, the two of them are excellent in it. Um, it's understandable why they both were pretty big sensations of the new wave. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, both the performances are great and you, you don't think of Belmondo in, in a role like this, right? But he's he's excellent and, and he really strikes this balance between kind of a, a sense of worldliness in a way, but not in a way that's, that betrays, you know, his, his role as a priest, but someone who's just very aware of the, the way of the world. And I think to be an effective priest, you, you have to be that way, or you have to recognize the challenges that, that you face um, and that your parishioners face. So that, that sense of, I think awareness and and even experience seems to come through with this character, even though he's supposed to be a fairly young character. And and same for Emmanuel Reba's character. I mean, she's clearly been through quite a bit already in in her life up to this point. And and then the war comes along, and and the film I think has a creative way of kind of presenting the tensions that that come from that uh, that period. It's funny you mentioned the levity as well, and then the two spinsters. Uh, they they mention wanting to come to town to see. Did they say the bald women or the women with the shaved heads? The which, shaved heads, yeah, yeah, which is kind of played for comedy, but uh, you know that's for people that don't know that you know women that were. Nazi collaborators basically they shave their heads after the liberation right so uh, they they're kind of coming to see the spectacle of of liberation after the the Germans had left and and that's almost played for comedy which is interesting uh, not not something you would 
immediately think to be comedic. But yeah, back to the performances, the uh, the chemistry between the two of them is very effective, and and it and that's saying something because it starts out as such an adversarial relationship. I mean, she she goes to confession almost in this very cynical, uh, maybe even semi comedic manner. I mean, she's not taking it seriously, right? She's just kind of there to to pick on the priest in some ways. And and to see that that arc that her character goes through is, is pretty effective and pretty powerful. So, yeah, it, it's it's a great uh, pair of performances for sure. Yeah, she has the task of giving us an arc that's believable, right? And to kind of convey uh, a very human change, yeah. right? I mean, so there, there's this, of course, question of like grace and everything, obviously, within the world of the characters, they believe it, right? They believe there is a, a a God who is working in their lives, and she comes to believe that, to accept it, almost to just kind of give up and surrender to it, right, is really what her, her conversion is, right? Uh, and that movement uh, towards that, right, is, I think, captured in her performance quite nicely. He doesn't really get, get that much of an arc. Uh, I mean, there's little bits you can see, uh, obviously, he has a change where we at the end he's getting a new assignment. He's going to be leaving, but you don't have to get the sense that he's changed a great deal from yeah. these interactions with her per se. Whereas you do get the sense she has significantly changed from them, right? Um, so that means I think that her character becomes much more dynamic, much more interesting for us, and it hinges a lot more on can Riva really play that that arc well, and I think she does. I think she. She does. It's you know one of these things. A lot of movies like this have is this this kind of suddenness to it. Like the, the the plot requires them to now think this or do this, and they do it right. And it doesn't feel organic. This feels very organic. I think that's partly from the way in which it's written, the way in which it's maybe even staged. You talked about it being episodic. Um, I didn't really feel the sense of episodicness. I I see what you're getting at there, but. Because it's, it really feels like it's just one continuous conversation. It, it doesn't kind of relate to me as an episode, uh, but rather as just a long discussion of ideas, right? Uh, and so the way it moves, it feels very organic, uh, and it doesn't have that sort of rushedness of now we need it to be at the end of the first act. Now we need to have that low point in the second act. Now we need to come to the climax, right? I mean, it feels like it's just very uh, slice of life. Uh, and that, that I think, lends very much to why it's – I'm convinced that she actually really does have a conversion, that it's not just that she's interested in the priest for herself at the end, that she's actually – I mean, one I, pres- I look at this and presume – even though he leaves, that she would probably be likely going to mass with the next priest, right? Uh, and would be going to the sacraments still, even after the story is done, mm-hmm. the part of it that we see. Uh, so I, I really enjoy that. Um, I think it's worth you know just hitting at you. You brought up the the spinsters and the the women with the shaved heads. There's another woman we see in the church at one point whose hair is cut very very short. One presumes she would have been one of those women. Right, that would have uh, collaborated with the Nazis, or at least been perceived to collaborate with the Nazis, uh, and you know. So this is also, in addition to, I think, a religious movie. I think it's also a war film, but war from the home front, so to speak. I mean, there's no battles. Uh, you know, we hear every now and again. There's a little bit at the beginning, a little bit of the sense of explosions and things off in the distance, but we don't really get the feel of it. But I think it's interesting that this is a a morally honest depiction of the war, which is very much to Melville's credit. And I assume it's, I have not read the novel, uh, Beatrix Beck's novel, but I'm assuming it's probably the same in her novel, uh, that it captures the fact that there is a lot of variation from person to person. You know, the, the, the uniforms of the Italian troops are really quite humorous. You know, this played as, it is played as a laugh. Uh, at the very beginning, the Germans are seen as much more sinister, and they're obviously a lot more f- fearful when they realize the Germans are going to be coming into town. Uh, and you know, that's it's just lingering around. But you know, it's interesting that uh, Barney's daughter has a good relationship with a German soldier. Right? He's kind to her. He's nice. He he gives her nice things. He, there's nothing malevolent that we see in him. 
we actually don't see the Germans as anything really. I mean, like there's the one that you know kind of yells at Barney because she's you know traveling without a permit, you know, and she's trying to cut across and avoid a checkpoint. But we don't really see them do anything bad, right? The GIs that show up, however, at the end, basically are about ready to. Well, one of them's about ready to rape her, uh, yeah. you know, with her daughter right there. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's. I think it's a film that is very accurate and honest about life and about the world, and that probably lends to why it is such an. At least for me, a very effective film on an emotional level as well as an intellectual level. And I, I appreciate that honesty that Melville puts into those details. It's not like it's, that's what the movie's about. It's not really about the war, but it really does give you a sense of how the war interacted with people's lives. Yeah. The, I mean, the Holocaust is kind of hinted at, right? I mean, there's certainly mm-hmm. um, right. tension around Jewish identity kind of throughout the film. So it seems pretty honest and upfront about that. Uh, of course, Barney's the 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 Edelman, the the man that's in charge of their school that they're working at, is takes on an assumed name and yeah. you know hides as a, as if he's just a regular Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, that was an interesting little moment in the voiceover where I think he was described as having like the fire of adventure in his eyes or something like that. I remember it's like, oh, that's an interesting way to to look at you know one's life basically being completely upended, right? And yeah, the, the film is, I think, pretty straightforward about um, about those historical details, and that's uh, that's certainly helpful. and And I think definitely makes the relationship between the two main characters just. I mean, it kind of puts everything in a blast furnace in a way, right? I mean, there's there's this intensity of war that sort of permeates the entire situation and and that that acuity can make relationships like that all the more um, impactful and uh, it's like the end of speed you know that you shouldn't uh, <laughs> romantic relationships forged out of uh, extreme situations never last so that's that's maybe something uh, this film is trying to teach us as well I, I I think we're gonna just say speed is the spiritual successor <laughs> to Liamar and Priest. <laughs> Never expected to make that connection, but there it is. Jean Pierre Meville, Jean de Bont, they're practically <laughs> paisan, right? <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the filmmaking. Um, as we mentioned, it's it's a it's a subtle film. I mean, I think Melville's moves are. I mean, you know what he's getting at, but he's not hitting you over the head with them. Uh, and I, I do think that he gets some really nice work. Uh, the cinematography is Henri Decay, who uh, is famous, uh, obviously worked on many other films. Uh, I think I really, watching this again today, I've seen this before. This wasn't my first time watching it, but watching it again for this conversation, um, I appreciated just how good he is at framing things and giving you kind of a sense of, documentary it's not you know cinema verite but i mean it does feel like it's documenting actual things and some of it is on set some of it's on location uh because melville liked being on set more than he liked being on on location uh but i mean the the cinematography really makes you feel like you're in a real place that you're in real spaces real apartments real uh churches and you know that this is something that it's documenting uh, a real story, and I think it's partly because the film's cinematography is pretty restrained. I mean, there's there's not a lot of fancy lighting. There's good lighting. I mean, there's good framing. There's good good uh, placement of the actors and of the camera, but it's never calling too much attention to itself. I don't know if you have any thoughts about just the the, the filmmaking itself uh, in this particular film. Yeah, I think. I, visually, I thought it was very strong. I mean, it, it's very obvious what scenes are on sets, and and the the lighting really corresponds to that generally, and and, and it's very pleasing and, and well done. But it doesn't call attention to itself, and I think the location work is um, is well done as well. And uh, yeah, the framing Melville seems to like negative space a fair amount, so there, there's some creative framing in that regard. 
especially those shots where she's kind of ascending the stairs toward um, Morin's apartment. And I, I think when, when I described the film as episodic initially, I was probably thinking more uh, editorially, you know, in terms of how this film is presented. There's a lot of very brief scenes, even just one-shot scenes, and the editing can seem a bit jarring at times. And some of the opticals are kind of nonsensical. So I, I, there's a maybe a touch of sloppiness editorially in, in some of this film uh, or some parts of this film, but it, it's never distracting and, and it actually kind of provides a sense of momentum to it as well. So just structurally though, and editorially it felt quite unique and, but it doesn't really lose the momentum of, you know, a sense of one continuous conversation like you had mentioned. So I, uh, I, I would agree with you on that point. Well, I think that the editing kind of captures this is this is Barney's story, right? We have her voiceover narration. Yeah. The beginning is a lot more like then there's this and there's this and there's this and it's kind of like a diary. Um I'm assuming that's partly done as a way of trying to compensate for removing several minutes of footage, right? I'm sure. And, I'm sure. Uh, you know, you have to kind of make some things work. And then once you take this thing out, then what does that mean for this thing over here? And so I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of that's playing out because of his decision to edit this down and really focus it down to just the two characters. Um, but I do think the editing, like you say, it has moments that it is like, okay, this one shot, this one little brief thing, and then it's on to the next and sometimes a little clunky. That is kind of how memory sometimes works. And so that's where I kind of went with it. I didn't call attention to me because I think that it captures her, right? It captures Barney. Uh, and interestingly enough, by the time we get to the end of the film, you know, it doesn't really feel like it's like it's her memoir anymore. It doesn't feel like it's her relaying the story. It's almost like we've caught up to her mm-hmm. uh, through this film. And that's actually one of the things that I think that is a, a par- effective in terms of just the story structure for this movie is that since we're journeying with her, right, and, and this is a part of why I say even – I'm obviously disagreeing with Melville on his own work, um, but I'm arrogant. I'll, I'll do it. Um, <laughs> The the fact that I think her conversion is real is the fact that, you know, we're hearing her describe past things and we catch up to her, right? She's she's looking back at things, sort of relaying who she was. We're seeing who she was through the images, uh, but we kind of catch up to where she's at at the end. And I think that the whole film's been us arriving at the place of her final Testimony to, uh, you know, a gratefulness to God, a, a love of him, not necessarily as a, an object of desire, but rather as as a servant of God. I think that's where it gets to. And little beknownst to us, that narration has been actually leading us to this point all along, uh, is I think what, what we ultimately see by the end of the movie. Yeah, no, nothing to add to that. Well, let's talk, uh, take a moment here to talk a little bit about Criterion's release. This is out of print now, uh, so uh, and it's not on the Criterion channel, so we both have the Blu-ray uh, and look through it. Um, it should be noted that there is an edition that's out by Kino Lorber uh, that has a, the, the director's cut, which only has about another 10 minutes of footage into it. Yeah, that, uh, so it's not that full three-hour version. That version is actually on the Criterion channel right now, the, the longer version. Oh, is it? Okay. I, I did not know that. Yeah. So thanks for calling me that, calling that to attention. Uh, so uh, it does have some deleted scenes. It's got uh, interviews and a scene-specific commentary. Uh, and uh, the uh, the edition, I think, is actually pretty well produced. Uh, Matt, what are your thoughts on the, the release from Criterion? Yeah, it's nice. I've, I've got the, the Blu-ray as well. And... Um it's one of those titles that's been sitting on the shelf for quite a while. <laughs> uh, given the given the fact that uh, I, I said I watched it for the first time, um, yeah, I didn't really have a chance to get in the supplements. That's, I will say that's, the, that's what I say just about every episode, and yep, today, is, today is no exception. <laughs> One of these days, you're going to say you watch them, and you're going to hear the sound of me passing out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, I did. I so I rewatched the the Lorber release uh, 
as well because I have that on Blu-ray. And uh, I think that version is actually a better transfer. Uh, just watching them back to back, it looks better. It's a new restoration, um, yeah. Right. So it, it's if you're if you're the two, the the differences between the two aren't great in terms of you know I did, it's not like you feel like you saw a different movie. Uh, the extra ten minutes doesn't fundamentally change anything in terms of interpretation of what events you see. So it's not like one of those director's cuts where, you know, think of Kingdom of Heaven where it really feels like a different film. This is just a little bit more of, of what I, I is a movie that I like. Um, so I would recommend people check that one out because it is a good release. But the supplements on the Criterion release I like more than the ones that were on the Lorber release, uh, which aren't bad themselves. Uh, and they aren't the same. They are, they are different uh, supplements. So the some of the interviews, things that are included on the one are not identical. So for purists or completists of Leon Moren Priest, uh, I recommend both releases. Uh, if you can find an out-of-print copy of this Blu-ray from Criterion, Pick it up uh, because I would recommend both releases be a part of your collection if you're a fan of this movie. And that, Matt, is, I think, a good segue to our final question of the evening, which is, does Leomorin Priest belong in the Criterion Collection? This is kind of a tough one. I mean, I I think I, I'm okay with it being in the collection. I, I think it's a very strong film. You know, Melville is an important director this it's definitely kind of an outlier, I think, in his filmography. And you mentioned his, you know, affinity toward trench coats and fedoras and kind of the the gangster picture aesthetic, even in his other war films like uh, Army of Shadows. But um, you know, Emmanuel Wariva, uh, Jean Paul Bomando, I mean, these are classic fixtures of French new wave cinema. So their, their performances here are definitely noteworthy. So yeah, I would say go ahead and include it. I'm going to say no. Uh, even though I love the film a lot, I think it's an excellent work of art and I'm glad that it's there. I mean, just selfishly, but I think it, I don't know that it's really a particularly important film. I mean, I don't know that it had major influence and it certainly wouldn't be if I'm trying to say what's the, What's a film to recommend of Melville? This would not be it. It wouldn't be what I'd go with Belmondo. Maybe for Emmanuel Riva, um, but though Hiroshima Hiroshima Monomore would probably be the more natural one to yeah. to steer people towards. Um, but I just don't see it having had any sort of major influence, which I would say is a shame because I wish it did have more of an influence, uh, more of a cultural legacy than it does. Uh, so I would vote no, but. There we have it, a, a disagreement uh, at the end of the day. The, the Protestant votes for the Catholic film. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> hell has indeed frozen over here as we <laughs> come to the end of 2022. So, well, thank you for joining us tonight. Please join us next month as we will be discussing our picks for our Criterion Christmas wish list. Uh, where we will select one contemporary as well as one classic film that we believe should be added to the collection. Thank you, and keep collecting. <laughs>